Welcome to the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, and I edit films and scripted TV shows in Hollywood. I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program to help aspiring editors start or advance their careers in post-production. I don't have any training in coaching or some fancy degree in psychology. I'm just a guy who is relentless in pursuing his goals and wants to help people do the same. But I didn't achieve happiness and success in my career alone. Throughout the years, I've come across some amazing people that have offered valuable advice and guidance. That's why I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program, to help people navigate the path to achieving their career goals. I've been in your shoes and gone through the same struggles. The challenges and fears on this journey are real. And I want to tell you, it is possible. Welcome to episode 15 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. And I'm so excited today to be able to talk to the editor of one of my favorite shows from last year, Michelle Tesoro ACE is here to talk about The Queen's Gambit. And you know, I just have so many questions for her about the editing process behind that show. And also just about her amazing career. She's worked on some really big shows. Uh, and so I want to hear all about it here on episode 15 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast. But before we get to our interview, I want to invite you to become a member of the Hollywood Editing Mentor community. It's free. You get a bunch of cool stuff. All you got to do is sign up at hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. As a member, you'll get access to my private Facebook group where you can connect with me and other members via live virtual office hours. It's a great platform to network, ask questions, and get notified of job opportunities in the industry. You'll also be able to submit questions for this podcast and have your name mentioned on the show. Members also receive exclusive bonus offers and downloads. So sign up today. It's free at hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. So like I said, I'm talking to Michelle Tesoro ACE today, whose most recent work includes Netflix's Emmy-nominated series, When They See Us, directed and produced by Ava DuVernay, and Netflix's hit limited series, The Queen's Gambit, directed by Oscar-nominated Scott Frank. Michelle's versatile slate also includes Focus Features' biography of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the basis of sex, starring Felicity Jones, Netflix's Emmy-nominated series Godless, directed by Scott Frank, and starring Emmy winner Jeff Daniels, Golden Globe-nominated show House of Cards, and the HBO series The Newsroom. So yeah, Michelle has an impressive resume, and we're going to hear more about how she has navigated her career uh, to land these big hit TV shows. It certainly had to do a lot with setting goals and, and, and knowing what she wanted, and also uh, getting connected with simply good people. Michelle is also going to give us an inside look at the editing uh, of The Queen's Gambit. Uh, so just very excited to talk to Michelle today. All right, guys. So here we go with episode 15 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast with editor Michelle Tesoro, ACE. I want to welcome uh, Michelle Tesoro, ACE here to the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast. Michelle, it's great to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's Friday, so woo. Exactly. No, I'm so excited. Uh, it is Super Bowl weekend. That's right. Do you watch football? Well, my husband is a huge football fan, and so I've now become a fan, whether I like it or not. Before, it was just me and the Chicago Bears, but oh, now nice. it's like... Now, now I understand how it all works. So. I'm in San Diego. I was a Chargers fan when they left San Diego. Uh, right. I don't have a team anymore. Right. <laughs> Even though I'm in LA, but you know, it's still, it's not the same. So uh, thanks again for being here, Michelle. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you uh, about your career. 
you worked on some amazing shows. Uh, one of them was one of my favorite from last year, The Queen's Gambit. Congratulations. Uh, I just received two Golden Globe nominations, uh, one for Best Limited Series and another for Best Actress in a Limited Series for Anya Tyler-Joy. Definitely a great series. Uh, but you've also worked on Godless, again with Scott Frank, uh, When They See Us, House of Cards, Luck. I mean, those are all big shows. I definitely want to hear more about your career, how you got to where you are today, and also get some insight into the editing of The Queen's Gambit. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, definitely would like to get to know you more, just learn more about you. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and, and how you developed an interest in editing. So um, I'm from Chicago. Uh, I'm born and raised there. Um, my mom is an immigrant. My parents are immigrants. Uh, she's a nurse. There was nobody in our family that was a filmmaker. This thing was a foreign to, to, to us when I became interested. Well, you know, I went to, um, Whitney Young high school and what there I got involved in theater and I was always into art. And, you know, my mom has, other than nursing, she has an artist streak and my sister's also very good with art. And so we have that kind of in our family. And, um, I, um, I was really involved in the theater and, and I watched a lot of movies growing up and, um, all that time in front of the television and cutting class to go see movies. Um, I was interested in filmmaking. So, um, I took, a summer course at Columbia College. It was for high school students on 16 millimeter filmmaking. And I took that and I just, I just thought it was so cool. And there were people in that class who were a couple years older than me. because I took that when I was 15 and everybody there were, they were like seniors in high school and they were going on. And a lot of them were going on to, um, film school, uh, in colleges like NYU or um, UCLA or so wherever they were, they were all leaving. And, and that fascinated me. And I got the idea that that could be a path um, that I could take, uh, which I did. And um, I didn't go immediately actually to film school. I went to the university of Illinois. I did my first two years there, um, you know, taking different kinds of classes, just my general eds. And because um, frankly, my grades weren't good enough to get into <laughs> NYU. <laughs> just not a good, just a very average student, you know, totally. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, what was great about that path was, you know, I didn't, I was able to get the NYU degree without having to pay for all four years of that, you know, because, for me, obviously, um, UAUC was an in-state school. So, you know, I played in-state tuition. It, it was a really great school. When I when I think back on it and when I finally got to NYU, I was like, huh, you know, I really, I was glad that I, I did that. And actually, when I arrived at Tisch, you know, all my classes could be film classes, which I thought was just so fun. It didn't really feel like school. It just felt like, oh, I'm doing this thing that I wanted to do. And um within you know they don't make you pick uh the thing that you want to do you get to have your hand at everything uh you can be a director produce take producing classes um writing classes everything and um so i did all of that and the one thing that i really took to that i felt like i was good at was was editing and you know and frankly i just wasn't very good at anything else so <laughs> so it sort of chose me you know and i kept you know, it, it was, it seemed so easy 
you know, I understood it and people, even my classmates would point it out, you know, so I was like, oh, okay. So that kind of gave me a leg up so that my second year there, I could really take advantage of the three AVIDs that NYU had to offer. (laughs) Not a lot. They had three media composers and the rest were like uh, AVID Expresses, if anyone knows what that was a long time ago. So, yeah, I mean, I took advantage of that and I, I tried to cut people's projects just, you know, to to do as much as I could. And and by the time I left school, um, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I it, it was really hard to find work um, that I graduated in 2001. So, um, you know, job market is really tight, um, <clears throat> but I did get a job at a at a record company. Um, that they were looking for a film and video assistant. It's very general, but I was there and, you know, the record company happens uh, is Apco Music and Records and they happen to have a very large um, library of the Rolling Stones and Sam Cooke, like very notable artists whose music gets used a lot in in film and television and so the job was to categorize you know you had to keep control of the library and and every time there was a, a music use you know i'd have to catalog it and all this other stuff and and they would often <clears throat> create promos for every time they would come out with a new album when they would remaster something or whatever so it was an interesting like way of doing video and but you know not kind of being lost in a big company or on a big show. Like I didn't have to be a PA. I could, I could really get in there with material and work with it. Um, you know, that's where I really learned how to build an Avid at the time and and um, be my own tech support. I really honed my skills um, um, on the, with the software, trying to be fast and just learning how to cut music and learning how to cut music performance um, as well. Uh, so, you know, I was there for maybe, let's say, I want to say 2001 to 2004 is when I left. And um, I mean, I've made friends there that I still have to this day. Um, but that's when I decided to, to move out to L.A. because, alas, um, it was really difficult to just get into the film and television world like you know, you couldn't even cut a short for free. There was like so much competition to just do that in New York at the time. Um, it's a little different now because of the post-production tax credit. There's so There were so many people or so many shows now in New York, but at the time there wasn't. So a lot of my friends had who I'd gone to school with uh, had moved to Los Angeles. And, and, you know, I started looking at going out there um, and... There were some people from that I had met at school. Um, some of the alum had recommended that I look into the ACE internship program, which was a really huge leg up for me. Um, I have met a lot of mentors out of there. Um, it really has a nice setup for for people who want to join the industry. And even if you don't, like I didn't get the internship, but just by applying, uh, you can participate in uh, their workshops, which is what I did. I was like, I applied and then then they said, oh, well, you didn't get it, but we have this workshop, three day long workshop in February if you want to join and you'll meet some editors and some assistant editors and 
and, you know, whatever. So I did that and it, it was life changing. I mean, I met, I met um, a handful of people who um, <clears throat> helped me get work along the way. And, you know, moving here to LA, I didn't know anybody, you know, except for the friends I knew from before, but, um, but yeah, that was a huge thing for me. You mentioned that you didn't get the internship, but were still able to attend all the events. You met a lot of people, made a lot of contacts. That in itself is very valuable. But I know there can be those instances where, you know, we don't get that job or we don't get that internship and we lose motivation. Uh, you know, we might even give up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think being able to recognize uh, the other type of value that such an experience can provide is certainly something that can help anyone break into this industry. I think you just have to have like an open mind. Well, A, you have to know what you want because sometimes it's hard to decide. Uh, it's hard to decide between this or that. And it's much clearer if you know what the end goal is. You know, if I didn't realize that, you know, I from talking to all these people, I realized that if I want to get into film and television, I want to do features, I want to do scripted television shows. You know, I, I think most of the work at the time anyway, in 2001, you know, you kind of have to make the trek out to L.A. because that's where people were telling me the jobs were at the time. So I think I just had this thing in mind and said, well, I could always come back to New York if I feel like I wanted to. But I I also didn't like living in New York at the time. I just wanted to get out. So it didn't it almost didn't matter if I got the internship or not, because I was going to go out there anyway. So, and, you know, I, I think I saved like $2,000, which is like crazy, like not a lot of money. Um, <laughs> you think, yeah, now you think about it, I was like, wait a minute, how, how did I do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, I mean, I saved it, at least I had yeah. something, but, yeah. you know, I, I got out there, I had to buy a car. It's like, you know, it's a whole life change that you dedicate to. Um, and yeah, I just think, I, I just decided I'm going to bootstrap it. And basically I felt... And I think this is true is, you know, unless you're super established in the industry nationally, like I would consider myself established at this point that if I wanted to move to New York or move wherever, I, I might be okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, I think you're gonna be just fine. <laughs> I think so. But like in the beginning, like nobody knew like what, who anyone I worked with, like when I moved to LA. So I just basically considered, okay, this move is like, it's basically starting over. So when I moved here, I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up at a temp agency so I can at least make some money doing something. You know, it may not, it, I mean, half the time it was not related, but I kind of was feeling this, this feeling of if you sometimes work begets work, like if you're working, that's when calls come in. You know, and when you're not working, nobody seems to call you, you know, like. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's usually how it works. <laughs> I literally used to buy tickets, like plane tickets home because I knew that if I was like sort of like, oh, I really need a job. I was like, oh, let's book a ticket home because magically something will happen where I can't go home. And I basically just had that very, you know, that vague philosophy of like, well, just keep working, just take take whatever opportunity presented itself, but always keep the goal in mind. Because certainly when I came here, I mean, you know, I had friends who were working in reality. I had friends working in different things. And, and I sort of had this opportunity of, I don't know, there was, there was a period of time where 
I I had a, through going to the workshop, I had a connection with an assistant editor who got me a PA job. And then that led to like my first assistant editing job. Uh, I wasn't a PA, I ended up being a post coordinator. Um, but that, you know, I made connections there with people who could hire assistant editors for, you know, even though I didn't have a lot of experience. Um, but that's how I, I, I was able to become, to get into editing. Um, and I was doing that. And I remember I had a friend who was in documentary, a documentary slash reality. And, you know, she was like, well, you could be making more money by editing reality. And I'm like, but I don't want to edit reality. You know, I want to do this. So I, I know, you know, I know it doesn't seem very creative being an assistant editor, but that's how everybody comes up. And you kind of have to respect the, the latter in, in whatever genre you're, you're, going into. And, and so that's what I did. Cause I, I could have, I, yeah, I could have made more money if I went there, but that's not where I want to go, you know? So just understanding what you want, like helps make those decisions. Yeah. It seems you had a plan early on, you know, you're talking about your finances, about like saving money and, and also just having an idea of where you wanted to go. Um, and also respecting the process, right. And saying, Hey, you know what? No, I want to be an assistant. You know, you go this route. Um, so speaking of that, I mean, like now Obviously, you like I said, you've worked on really high-profile shows, really big shows. Can you tell us just kind of how you've navigated your career, say, from being, you know, breaking in as an assistant and then to moving up to the editing chair on, on these big shows? I mean, how have you navigated your career and just like what decisions have you made that you think have, you know, propelled you in your career? Well, um, I mean, I think I got a little lucky with um, the group of people that I ended up working for Um when I was first assisting, I guess <laughs> the industry is really quite small and they're good people and not great people. And I think I just happened to be with good people um, that all actually knew each other. So it um, I, I got let's see, what was the first. So one of the first um, projects I worked on as an assistant editor was a show called Saved for TNT. And um, the editor was Peter Frank, who I had actually met at school at NYU. He was one of he lives in New York and um, he would come and speak at some of the editing classes. So so I had known him and, and he was willing to take a chance on me uh, as an assistant. I think I had one credit. I had worked on Ghost Whisperer um, and I was filling in for someone they had fired, basically. So that was actually a really great opportunity because I could see how like a show like a nor like a TV show ran. And, um, you know, the assistant on that show was really kind and and really guided me um, as to how to do things. And like she never made me feel bad for being a novice, because I guess whoever was there before me was like really made it like bad. So they were just grateful <laughs> that I wasn't like some, you know, some a-hole. So, um, Oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, but I got on, on the show with Peter Frank and he did, he did the pilot and the, uh, the producer director on that is David Manson. And when the show got picked up for a series, there was, you know, obviously they hired two other, editors and another assistant and those have become those people have become lifelong friends um who who were really the basis of where my career 
began. You know, like I got, they were Lisa Bromwell, Michael Ruscio, and the assistant that I worked with, Lisa DeMariah, um, I also have become very close with. So we were all on that show together. And basically because I worked with them and we all had such a good time whenever they, and they were doing high profile things. I mean, Michael Ruscio had just come off of six feet under, I think at the time Lisa Bromwell had just left weeds and, you know, so they worked at a certain level. And because of that, when I had to get, when they were, when they went on to their next jobs, they, I would get a call, you know, um, to, to work for them. And I was able to work on in treatment, which both Lisa and Michael worked on as well as Lisa, the assistant. And, um, and that, that was one of my first editing credits. Right. So, cause when they moved on, they, I think Michael may have recommended me, but I, I had made a good impression on the producer, Rodrigo Garcia and, um, and, and yeah, that's all of those connections sort of come from one place. And I think, uh, it gave me the pedigree moving forward to, to get on those bigger shows. And it's funny, I mentioned David Manson only because Scott and I were talking about, cause I said, him, how did you get my name? Like, cause I'm trying to think like how we're trying, we were trying to remember how we got connected. And he was like, Oh, he's like, who gave me your name? Who gave, he's like, Oh, I know who it was David Manson. So that was like one of the first producers I ever worked with. So that's just, you know, that's kind of how, how it is. But, but yeah, I mean, I got, I think because of those, those first projects, I had really good, like, a. I was just working with people who were working at a certain level. It led me, you know, down a path that was already something. And I think the thing that kind of launched me a little bit further was, was working on luck. Uh, and that was the show with Michael Mann. And, and that just puts you in a different, you know, hemisphere because, you know, now it's like a big feature director trying to, you know, doing television. And so at the time that was in 2010, 2011, um, there was sort of this beginnings of big feature people doing television, you know, which, cause after that show, after I did luck and then luck got canceled the second season, um, that's when house of cards was, um, going into production in terms of the series. And I was able to get on that because of being on luck. Like, so it was almost like good. Oh yeah. Luck ended. And I ended up on that show. So, um, and then those two credits just sort of piled on top of each other, you know, you know, sometimes it is just timing, right? I mean, like th th this industry and what we do, it's uh, timing has a lot to do with it, with projects we work on. Um, but also though, like you said, meeting good people, because I can certainly like, the, I started, you know, on one show and from there branched out. I met amazing people on that show. I mean, some that are like really good friends, some of my best friends now. And then from there branched out to other shows with people from that initial show. But you, you know, when you meet good people, they know other good people, right? I mean, it's right. just kind of, it just keeps going, right? So you just, you're in this network of like amazing people. And, you know, certainly one of my goals is uh, just working with good people. That's what I yeah. always say, right? Yeah. But, but I think it's, I don't know, it has to do, I mean, people always ask me, how do I meet these? Because I tell them they're out there. So how do I meet them? I think it's about, I don't know, putting out that energy. I am, I get, I don't know if it's spiritual or what, but at least for me, it's just putting out good energy and that gets me attracted to, the right people. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that, you know, if, if you're a certain way, if there are people 
who wouldn't be good to work with, it automatically, you automatically reject each other. And I think because of how um, fluid the, uh, in nature, the business is, it's like jobs start and then they end. They never like continue. You're never kind of really stuck. You can always change. So there's always these opportunities to sort of shift course and, and for things like, I, I always joke <laughs> when I think about it, I was like, oh, you know, it was really lucky that all that some of the shows that I was on, like kept, kept getting canceled because I was forced to move on and I was forced to gain credits and meet even more people. And really in the end, like that, you, it created a foundation um, for all the work that, that I continue to get now, you know. Uh, you know, you, you talked about how you met Scott Frank. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how that connection uh, came to be and also about the earlier stages of your working relationship and how it has evolved over the years? So, I mean, as I had mentioned before, when I asked him, how, how did you, how did, where did you get my name from? And it was David Manson. And the reason is because he and David Manson produced a pilot called Hoke, um, which I cut. It was for FX and it, it never went to series, but we did the pilot together. And that was in 2014. And um, yeah, I think he had come off of working on a movie and he was sort of in the market for a new editor. And, um, you know, it was a nice little project that we could sort of, uh, it was actually the first project he worked with Steve, Steven Meisler on. I think Carlos, he had worked on with, um, on Tombstones. So that wasn't a new face, although we, we didn't get so far. We didn't, you know, where Carlos was going to write music for the pilot because it was over, right? By the time, <laughs> but, but he had the same music editor and, um, you know, it was just Scott and I learning each other. So, and I think at that point, you know, the, the, you know, we, we really liked each other and then the pilot didn't get picked up. And then Scott was deciding to move to New York. So he originally lived in Pasadena and was moving to New York later that year, basically. So between that year, I think I didn't hear from him again until Godless was the summer of 2016. So maybe a year and a half later, he called me out of the blue or emailed me and said, Hey, are you, do you happen to be available? And I was like, well, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, uh, there were jobs I was circling around and I had met on, but I, I don't, I don't remember if I, I don't think I had committed to anything quite, quite yet. I was close on one. I was actually close on Ozark. So first season of Ozark. Anyway, he called me. He's like, oh, you know, because Netflix said you weren't available, but I thought I would call you and just check. And <laughs> what is he? I was like, well, I mean, I, I was like, I interviewed on their other show. I think maybe that's why they said I wasn't available. And he was like, well, let me tell you about this project, which was Godless. So when he told me about it and I'm like, oh, well, I, I have to do that. I'm, of course. You know, I can't, there's no other person. Yeah, I think he said, well, we were interviewing somebody else. Like, I think it might have been someone like Dylan Titchener, like somebody like way up there, you know, he's like, well, you know, he's fine. But he's, I, he's like, I, I would I'm willing to bet that you're way cheaper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think he just wanted to work with me, but, you know, too. But I think that certainly was something that you could sell, you know, but, um, but yeah, I did that. And, and yeah, I think that that completely solidified the relationship there. So, and he's always really good about, um, 
letting me know ahead of time, you know, if he's got something planned or when I should keep myself available or something, which is, which is great because nowadays, and this doesn't just go for me, there's other people too that, I mean, people get, you know, snapped up like that. There's just, there is a lot of things out there. There's a lot of projects and you have to like uh, finding that right timing of having somebody available within the next month is kind of rare. Although now this year, because of, because of COVID and stuff, it's, um, you'll find more people are available, but. I want to talk, uh, start kind of getting into more of the, the editing process for you. You've edited two limited series Uh, for Scott Frank, we were the sole editor on a show you're editing all the episodes. In this case, I'm talking about Godless and The Queen's Gambit. H how is that experience compared to, say, working on with, say, maybe three other editors and you're getting one or two episodes? Uh, can you tell us the, the difference in that experience and also maybe the if there's a difference in, the, in your process? Uh, the process certainly is different. I mean, uh, those two shows that you mentioned that I did that way um, were both were with the same director, writer, uh, Scott Frank. Um, and that came about because of the way that it was being shot and because that's what he wanted. You know, uh, it was all being shot uh, together. Uh They were all uh, all six episodes. Uh, the started with six scripts on Godless, uh, and it um, was all the schedule was such that all the episodes were cross boarded, and that means they schedule the shooting based on location and actor availability only. And there's not like, you know, we're going to spend um, two three weeks shooting episode one, then episode two. It was all, you know, in one day you could receive episode three, episode five, episode one. And that just went on for 120 days. So, <laughs> so by the nature of it, it's, it's shot like it's one long movie. And so that's why he, he sort of had this idea of, well, you know, I'd like, I don't really want to work with more than one editor. I mean, because I can't really focus on more than one episode. So, you know, could you do it? I'm like, okay. You know, and I knew he wasn't this kind of director who like shot like, three cameras all the time, you know, with indiscriminate amount of like coverage, you know, it was, he really thought about what he was going to shoot and how much coverage he was going to get. So I knew that it wasn't going to be like a lot of footage to get through, you know, like, if you know what I mean, it wasn't like four, four hours versus two and a half, you know, very doable for if, if I'm going to be doing that for like a long extended, extended period of time. I will say it was very exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> But I, I enjoyed it. And he was very um, patient. And because it's something he wanted, he believed in it. He wasn't like, you know, pushing against it, you know, pushing against the fact that he had to wait for things. And because we were just carrying around this really big box, you know. Um, but, you know, the way that it worked is, you know, just cut dailies. As I said, 120 days, I had like a month actually to finish assembling before I would show the first assembly. And Godless truly was, I, I think my assistants cut maybe a, a handful of scenes, you know, in terms of the assembly. This is why when I went on to Queen's Gambit, I was going to employ them a little bit more um, to to. And also they shot it a little differently. So it kind of, you know, there were some easy gimmies there and that I was like, okay, you know, I think I feel secure enough in, in my ability to, to guide them. Um, and, and also 
uh, I felt good enough about them and their cutting ability to see, to have them kind of ride that bicycle, you know? Um, so it was a little different, but on Godless, I, I definitely did cut like a lot of that all the time, like the assembly. And so that was, that was hard, but, um, you know, after, so I had an assembly period of time once I had the assembly and now granted, it's not like Scott hadn't seen the episodes. Um, he had seen sections as they were shooting because the other thing that we're really worried about is if he waited all that long, all that while to see all the episodes after they stopped shooting, what if we needed something? What if, what if he was missing whatever? So, which is why, like, as I shot, I wanted to give him cuts, even if they were rough, he was really fine with seeing them just no sound effects, just the way it was just to see if stuff was working. And, and that really helped that bought me all that time to assemble and, and he was giving notes on it. So it was great because I could, I just like, categorize that, you know, or we took the notes and we put them to the side so that by the time I went back to it, I had notes, I had something, some sort of feedback to work with. So we did that. Plus the other thing that we had that was different is we had like a sound editor um, on board, uh, like who was basically cutting like final effects, real effects and doing real work on the dialogue. And that was like a really, a real leg up. That's huge. <laughs> it's huge. It's huge. And um, I, it was nice because the assistants didn't really have to, you know, do sound work, you know, sound editors doing sound work. Uh, we also had a music editor, which is a, also a huge leg up. And so they didn't have to be worrying about cutting music. So like picture editing, Picture editorial could focus on picture editorial, you know. So, and we did this on the on the Queen's Gambit as well, which is why you can carry more of a load because it is dispersed in in other ways. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, it's a great benefit to have the sound department uh, come on, start working dur during the earlier stages of the editorial process because assistant editors certainly uh, spend a lot of time doing sound design and this frees them up to do other things. It could take them a whole day. I mean, really to do like a complicated sequence that either has like a lot of crowds or, you know, or maybe there's a crash or something, you know. So, there's that experience versus, you know, when I was on When They See Us, which is also a miniseries, it was also shot by one director, but we had three editors. And so we sort of, we had the episodes divided. And, you know, so I was in charge of my episode three. And, you know, I didn't have a sound team, you know. Uh, so that was a little bit more like a regular um episodic the usual experience of of that is where you have your assistant they have to do a lot of, you you and your assistant have to do a lot of the music editing and the sound um editing um we were at some point we did get a music editor which i was like thank god hallelujah um, <laughs> so that took some of the burden off but not all because i was on part three and usually the music editor was helping on somebody else's episodes and not mine so <laughs> <laughs> they can only do so much. Um, but, you know, it's just a little different. Um, I mean, I had a good time on that, you know, as well, because I really liked the other two editors. I mean, it was it was interesting to work on. I liked the material. So, I mean, every project is different. It just has 
different people. And again, it really does come down to the people, what your experience is going to be. Oh, yeah, no doubt. That's certainly uh, a really big part of it. Uh, you know, once again, uh, congrats on the Queen's Gambit. You did some amazing work. It was certainly one of my favorite shows from last year. How did you prep for it? And also what kind of conversations did you have early on with Scott Frank about the show? Well, I mean, he told me that he was doing this for Netflix. I can't remember when, but I do remember him telling me about it. And I went out and I got the book and I read the book before he said, oh, I'm, I'm still working on the script. So I'll let you know when Some of them are available. He started sending me scripts that had already maybe, I don't know if they're pre-Netflix pass or after, but I remember getting two versions um, before they actually went to shoot, um, went to camera. But, um, But yeah, I got involved quite early just because we already had a previous relationship. He, I think, was already working on music with Carlos, in fact, and, um, you know, we're just having discussions about, you know, just general what I thought. Um, I mean, this script was seemed very it seemed very clear to me what the editing was going to be like. I mean, pace wise, I remember saying to him, it feels like this is fast pace. Is that what you imagine like because there's a lot of these like small interstitial scenes that flow into one another and you know, what is, what are your thoughts? And then he said, yes. <laughs> Cause I was like, yeah, you know, I got, I, I know it's 65 pages or whatever it was, but it doesn't feel that way. He's like, well, that's what we have to make sure when we deliver a cut that it, that you get the same feeling. Like you have no idea where that, that hour went. Um, and yes, it's sort of fast paced. And I think the, the biggest thing he said is like, you know, we have to focus on, you know, obviously there's, trying to make chess cinematic was everyone's focus. So, um, but those were the kind of conversations we were having. And, you know, he had sent the script as well to um, Meisler. I, I think Carlos was also on that chain. Our sound designer, Wiley, um, was on that. And, and yeah, and, and I'm sure everybody was giving him feedback of what they thought. You know, it's interesting that you bring up pacing because when I watched the show, something that stood out for me was the pacing of it all. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well paced and there's some great rhythms that are established in the cuts and both in, say, dialogue scenes and the chess matches. How did you end up finding the right pace and rhythm for the show? It's an interesting question. Um, And I sort of forgot about this (laughs) until recently, but um, I felt like I, I had the pace of the show when I... I, I got it there in episode two before I got it there in episode one. So um, I just think it was just something about the way the scenes were coming together. Um, obviously, I have Anya in that episode. Um, but it was something that we kind of like I knew what it had to be, but I hadn't kind of manifested it, you know, exactly yet, because uh, especially in assembly phase, you know, it's like am I cutting out too early? Do I need to be more, can I be more aggressive? Are you okay with me being more aggressive? You know, it's like, it's that. And, and he was, you know, I think just feeling like I had the permission to do that. You know, I, I had more permission automatically to do, to, to do that. Cause I knew that he could trust that we could open it up if it felt too, a little too much, but I, we got there in two. And then when I felt like, Oh, you know, this is really working here in this section of two, 
we had to make it work in one. So it, it was sort of like it worked a little bit better in the later episodes. And then when we had to go back to one and sort of apply that same feeling um, overall. And you're right. It's, it's not, um, it is, yes, in, in scenes themselves, singular scenes themselves, but it's an overall scene to scene pace that I was trying to achieve, you know, and again, it goes back to that same feeling of reading the script going, okay, she goes here and she goes here and this happens, you know, and like looking at maybe a group of five scenes, one could be a dialogue scene and the others could be her going here or grabbing this thing or whatever. And then just knowing amongst all those five scenes where the important parts are and where you need to stop and land. Where do I need to land when you're jumping from tree to tree? I have a question from uh, one of the, the, the members of the Hollywood Editing Mentor community, Elise Hansen, who's an editor from Norway, says she loved The Queen's Gambit and wants to know, how did you come up with a way to avoid making the chess matches repetitive and keep the tension? I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I think that's Scott. That's Scott deciding from when he began writing these scripts that, okay, I need to make chess cinematic, <laughs> which means it can't be the same every time. And we, we, and maybe the strength of it isn't being on the chess, but being on the players, on our character, trying to play out the subtext more than what was actually happening and using different devices to get an, a non-chess player to follow along. I mean, the announcer is a great place, you know, the, the, the Mexican announcer. And, and also in, I think in two is like where you're really sort of establishing, can people watch chess? Can this play out? Because you're not, you know, there's things he's written in there that help the viewer understand, you know, what's going on, you know, what could be going on. Uh, so, and, and, and as we go, it's like, there's a certain, uh, after people have watched, the first three episodes, they're sort of well-seated in what a chess mat- match looks like, you know, what laying down a king is, what a loss looks like that, you know, from episodes four on, we kind of can let loose and really get more abstract with it, you know, on, until at the very end, we have the last tournament where we like to kind of go back to square one. You know, it's very, I, I had made a mistake in a different interview. I had said, oh yeah, uh, the ending is sort of recalled back to episode two, but it's actually recalled back to the Vegas um, match with Watts because, you know, when they start playing, it's just those medium shots. It's one, another, it's very like simple, Um, nothing fancy. So yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, that's Scott just sort of thinking that he's going to do it this way. And then me cluing in to, Again, finding what the important beats are dramatically in every match and and making sure that those beats land. The other thing is, too, is just making sure there's always a question and that the scenes don't end at the end of the scene. The sort of you, you kind of have a little bit that hangs over like it's just thinking about things as sequences. So, and again, it goes back to it being about the drama. If you're thinking about, for example, episode one she's learning how to play chess, right? So we're actually learning with her, right? So there's these basic things that we're learning. And I mean, I don't know much about chess myself, but I know what they shot and I know what the intention was. So, 
you know, trying to show things in a way that people understand is was sort of like explaining it to myself. Like, <laughs> you know, like this is a move that Scheibel is, is teaching her. And I'm kind of, you know, the Nydorf variation, the Levenfish variation, right? And the one variation, right, is where that pawn moves at the very end, right? That's There's sort of subtle differences that I had to make sure I showed in a way that was similar to how I showed the previous one. So you can see the difference, but that was more me like explaining it to myself. Oh, that's the difference. So I need to focus on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, people who know about chess and also people who know nothing about chess are going to be watching this. So how do you find that balance and make it clear? Yeah. Make it clear for them. Right. I mean, and, and I bring that up. Sorry. I kind of went off on a tangent, but Um, I bring it up because that sequence, the idea is the point that we have to get is, um, will you teach me? Okay, I'm going to, yes, I'll teach you. Sit down. I'm, I'm done being, being angry at you. Right. So you can sit down um, to uh, you're astounding. And there was a lot in between there that wasn't that before, you know, I mean, there was a montage, the learning montage of her taking the pills and imagining chess on the ceiling and um, learn and playing with Scheibel. But there's like the, when she plays white, that used to be its own thing where we sit down and we watch the whole match and then she beats him. Right. But it started to be too much chess, you know, and, and we decided to fold it into the rest of the montage. So that's sort of a good example of like, you want to keep the tension and not play that card too hard you know, and it's, it's as much about what you show as it is about what you don't show, what you take out and um, where you decide to say, to, to focus the viewer. I recently talked to uh, Carlos Rafael Rivera, the composer of the show, who will be on the, uh, on the, on the next episode of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. What was it like uh, working with him and, and, and just, you know, from the temp process, temping your cuts and then communicating with him. Uh, can you talk to us about just kind of how that works or, or especially specifically how it worked on the Queen's Gambit? So on the Queen's Gambit, I mean, I know that he, I mean, I know that he started working on this music with Scott way before they started shooting, uh, you know, way early in a prep. I think he had already been working on it a year uh, by the time we started to um, shoot. So I had heard maybe one cue, um, which Scott will note, It was for the end. And I was like, this is too light. I didn't imagine this. Like, I totally thought it was wrong. And, you know, and I, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know about this. And he's like, no, no, this is absolutely right. And it's like, okay. I was like, well, you know, I'll trust that you guys are doing what you do, you know, and, and I'll see how, how it goes. But the collaboration, once we started shooting, I think during that time, like uh, Carlos was sending him sketches and, you know, Scott was still, you know, giving him feedback and they were working it. He generally doesn't send me all this, uh, like they're sent to us and we can listen to him. And I was doing that. Like I was listening to his sketches on my walks to the cutting room, just so I can be up to date with their conversations and what was being talked about. Um, but I don't know. I wasn't sure like how that was necessarily going to play in. because sometimes I get the footage and, You know, it's just still so amorphous in the beginning that I tried not to get distracted by it. But essentially, once I got a cut together, which might be a first cut, I would send that cut, no sound effects, um, 
nothing, just avid sound, you know, my best version of that. And, uh, and I would send that to, to Scott on picks and we would work the cut. He'd give me some notes, you know, maybe three weeks later or something after I got through, cause I'm still cutting dailies at the same time. I would do the notes and I would, um, you know, we, we got it to, he, we would get it to a point where Scott would say, okay, I think maybe we need Carlos to, let's give this to Carlos and see what he does with it. I'm like, okay. So we would do that. And that's basically how we were doing it. That's how we did it on Godless. We sort of work it to the point where we're like, all right, I think, I think we can put music to this and see where it goes from there. And not just where music goes from there, but where, where picture goes from there. So, um, so that's how it, it how it went. And as I recall, <laughs> um, they did a lot of episode one shooting at the front of the schedule. So Carlos was doing that world right away. And, and it took a little bit to sort of find, find that tone, you know, because you have a little girl and you don't want it to play magical and, but you also don't want it to play too dark. So where is that? So it was really interesting to see the process. And I mean, he's so, so great at writing themes and um, just, I mean, he could write a theme for every cue basically, <laughs> which you don't need to do, but um, yeah, but he's so talented. So like we, you know, we would see where it was and we would have a lot of back and forth about how we felt about it, how we felt about, about, about picture based on what, you know, what we saw. I, I, I specifically remember giving him, like we we're working on this Gans cue, her, her playing Gans for the first time, which the way it is now was not how it was <laughs> in the beginning. In the beginning, it was like a really long scene where he, they play out these whole games and Scott kept going, Oh, give it to Carlos. You know, once Carlos puts his music in, you know, it'll work. And then, Oh my gosh. And, and it's, and you know, you know that it's really not working when after you put beautiful music, it still feels too long, Yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. or it still feels like something's not working, you know? So it, it, it's so informative to have, be able to do that and be able to do it with the composer working in the music world that, this show is going to live in, you know, because sometimes you're like, well, maybe it's not working because this is temp and maybe it will be better if it were scored, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't have, have the composer. So, you know, it's very good. And, and um, a big component of this is his music editor, Tom Kramer, who really, um, I don't know if you guys talked about him at all, but um, really guides him as well and understands, you know, he is that bridge between me and, what he does in his writing in terms of Carlos's writing. So, and it's really good. So, um, you know, he helps, you know, once Carlos has a certain amount of cues that he's already, that we've already approved that, you know, we're kind of going into a direction, which is maybe halfway through post Tom will take some of those stems uh, and we'll start applying them, you know, where we're, I think he and Carlos would agree that they would go, you know, and they have a really very good collaboration and it really makes it easy for me because I don't have to think about, you know, you know, I, I would normally, when I would cut, I would put in the, you know, in the music track as a, as a locator or a marker, you know, maybe music starts here. I don't know. You decide. Cause usually when I would turn over those, um, those sequences to them, uh, 
those notes carry carry over into Pro Tools so they can see in the timeline, you know, my thoughts if I had a note for them or if Scott had a note or something. Because that's what we would do is like I would send the the cut dry to to Scott. We'd get it to a point and then he'd give a music note saying, oh, I think I want music here. And music should be out here. And so I would give them that note. And so they would know, okay, it, this is how it's going to be tracked or how we're going to try to track it. Yeah, it's a beautiful score, and it's great to hear uh, how you collaborated with Carlos. Uh, but besides uh, the score, I mean, there's some some great music in in this show uh, from the '60s. Uh, how was that music selection process for you? Yeah, we had a really great um, music. You know, our music supervisor is super, you know, experienced, Randy Poster, and he just he was there from. It was just so important because sometimes you don't hire this music if you don't hire the music supervisor. Um, until after you started shooting, you know, it, you can really get into a lot of trouble, especially if you've shot something on, on camera. Whereas like they had Randy from before shooting or at the very beginning. So he could pick some of these cues, uh, that they would shoot like the, um, you know, the, you're the one that I, that one, like that one had, you know, that was a Randy pick. There was, there were all these like cues that maybe Scott had wrote in something else and, you know, Randy had given him um, a a number of different selections that, that ended up being better. So, and that just continued on as we would slot in more cues in different places that weren't necessarily written in the script. So, but yes, I mean, I think, the name of the game when you're on a Scott Frank show is that everybody is um, involved from very early on and we all just have to work together in tandem. No, I mean, as I wanted to mention that. It's just that you can tell, obviously he works, there's a lot of people who returned, came back to the community's gambit. Uh, yourself, Steven Meisler, who's an amazing DP, Carlos, uh, sound designer, Wiley Stateman, and some of the cast um, mm-hmm. as well. So, I mean, you could just tell that, you know, to me, it was just very artistic. You could just tell that the passion coming through that you were just kind of connecting. That's what I guess I got from the show, part of what I got. It's just like a cohesive team. It just feels like it. Again, congratulations. I, uh, I, I want to wind this down. I want to be respectful of your time. Just two more questions. Uh, what was it like working with Scott Frank in the edit room? And what have you learned throughout the years about working with directors? Um, I mean, it's you know really important to have a nice, uh, just a rapport with everybody in the room. I, I, I don't know. There's something about me that I guess most people get along with. I mean, I, it's very rarely that I get, you know, Arnery. <laughs> um, I don't normally get that unless I'm working really late, which I'm. I don't like to work in the middle of the night. That you'll you'll see the Chicago come out and me. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't want that. Don't want that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, with him, you know, Scott and I, we we're pretty simpatico in how how we think about you know how to approach things. So already we're off to you know, an easy start, you know, we're not coming from two different places. Um, but, you know, I think he just really respects what I do and I respect what he does. So it's, it's a nice communication. It's like uh, a nice workflow. And I think, but by the time he's actually in the room or we're working live on Evercast or something like that, um, you know, we've already worked the material back and forth through notes. And I mean, he, 
really trusts me, you know, with these first assemblies. And I feel very comfortable with him showing him things that I'm just experimenting with. So I, I just think over the years, our relationship has gotten a lot better um, just because we're familiar and we're, we're willing to kind of change and show different sides of ourselves. So, um, but, you know, working in a room, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, he used to say, you know, oh, you know, I love doing this Evercast thing or on Zoom or whatever, where, you know, we get to stay home in our PJs, but, you know, he really missed seeing all of us, you know, just because he enjoys our company, you know, <laughs> you know, and we just have really a good rapport. I mean, I, I asked him to be our, the officiant at my wedding. I mean, he introduced me to my husband. I mean, oh. it's <laughs> okay. a little... It's a little pretty tight. <laughs> it's a little tight in, in a weird way, you know. Uh, that relationship between editor and director is just kind of it's special. It is kind of like a marriage, you know. And I've I've had that across the board with anybody you work with, not just Scott, but other people. It's like you you have that relationship. It's like they're your significant other <laughs> in some respects. Oh yeah. You'll definitely hear it from a lot of people. It is very similar to dating. <laughs> uh, but uh, Michelle, uh, just one more question, which was actually inspired by a scene in episode four of the Queen's Gambit, where Alma uh, tells Beth that there's more to life than chess. And of course, Beth uh, wants to be a great player. And in order to be great, she decides to make chess her life. And so, you know, this made me think about uh, this editing career. You know, a lot of editors, their goal is to work on the biggest projects, to win the awards, to be great. Uh, but the reality is that, yes, that requires a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, I'll say a lot of people realize that, you know, this is a, a job that's not for them. How can we as editors find balance between working hard to achieve our career goals, but also make time for the things that make us happy outside the cutting room? You know, that work-life balance thing. Joaquin, you are <laughs> asking a question that probably any successful person is still trying to answer. <laughs> hey, well, maybe we'll finally find the answer here on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. <laughs> I mean, I think at some point you sort of have to see like, okay, I've, I've committed and sacrificed this amount of time you know, to get where I am. Am I at a point now where I should take a break? I mean, it's sort of it, what sucks about it is that you end up compartmentalizing your life in terms of when a project is over, then you can look at, then you turn around and go, oh, here's my family and here's this person, this friend here and whatever that you probably haven't talked to, you know. Um, it's really hard. You kind of have to get yourself to a place where you can pick projects to be working with people who also have their own lives. I mean, that's sort of easier. Like if you know that they like to go home at six o'clock or they, they need to be home by seven or they don't, you know, they turn into a pumpkin by, by eight, then you know that you'll have your evening, you know, to, to be with your family, have dinner with them or, you know, to have, to see a friend or, or whatever. Um, I think, yeah, that's a really tough question because I feel like the first, yeah, I mean, I feel like the first five years I was really sacrificing a lot of time. Like I did, you know, not only was I doing a regular working job either as an assistant editor or even when I became an editor, I was doing stuff on the side, you know, just to sort of build my 
resume. And, and there was a lot of times, you know, sacrifices, weddings I missed, you know, things like that. Do I regret some of I regret a handful of things like that. There's maybe one, there's one wedding I, I do regret missing, but overall it's like, well, that was a sacrifice to get, in my opinion, to where I am now because I worked really hard. And if I hadn't, and I, I just knew that one thing, even no matter how small I was doing was going to affect whatever I did next. Uh, it's great to have goals. And, and, you know, if we know where we want to end up, then uh, we got to do what it takes to get there. So, yes. uh, but Michelle, I, I appreciate your time. And it was really great talking to you and getting to know you more. Thank you uh, for being on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. And, and again, congrats on the Queen's Gambit and all the amazing work you've done. Cannot wait to see uh, what you work on next. Great. Thank you so much, Joaquin. It was my pleasure. So exciting to have been taken into the cutting room of the Queen's Gambit by Michelle Tesoro, ACE. Uh, it was just great to get a behind-the-scenes look at the editing of this amazing show. And make sure not to miss the next episode of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. I'll be talking to Emmy-winning composer Carlos Rafael Rivera about his process for creating the score for The Queen's Gambit. Thanks again for listening to episode 15 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. It'll help this show become an informative resource for the post-production community around the world. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, the creator of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program. Stay safe, stay positive.